Minimalists. <laughs> hey, patrons, this is Ask the Minimalists number 19. Yes, welcome. Thank you so much for all of your support. It means... It means so much. This is, uh, and this is for the true fans, right? The true fans. Guys, You're a true fan. You are a true fan, and we really appreciate it. Heck yeah. So our first question, we'll start with the most upvoted ones, and then we'll spend the entire time getting to as many of these questions as we can from the true fans. Gretel says, how can I relate environment responsibility, uh, responsible practices with minimalism? Mm, I love that question. I think it's a, a Venn diagram, right? Uh, the, and the thing that I noticed, it wasn't, it wasn't the thing that I aspired toward when I first became a minimalist. It was to get my, my own life in order, mm-hmm. not to save the environment. Mm. But then I realized pretty quickly, by consuming less, I had less plastic, mm-hmm. less trash, less junk, less things I had to recycle in the future. Mm. It was just less in general. Yeah. And when we do less, it's not about consuming nothing. Minimalists don't own nothing. Minimalists own what add value to their lives. And as that changes, of course, the things we own change. We have to get rid of some stuff. But often we can repurpose them, recycle them, have them reused by, by someone else as opposed to just throwing it in, in the trash heap. But then going forward, it's about having fewer things in our life, not nothing in our lives. I totally agree. Gretel, I think in this situation, you've got to look at what are your values what do you truly, truly value when it does come to the environment? And you know what? Maybe you're using plastic bags and you want to stop that. Or maybe uh, you want to take less airplane rides, whatever it is. Like what matters is what you're doing in your own environment to help out the the greater environment. Because it can be overwhelming if you look at the opposite. Yeah. How can I fix the entire environment? Yeah. I mean, maybe if you're Elon Musk, you can start tackling questions like that. <laughs> but for most of us mere mortals, mm. most of us human beings, yeah. it's about doing what we can. And, and man, the small things really add up. When you go to like a museum and you see like just the number of plastic bottles in a display they use, this is the, the average American uses this many plastic bottles in a year. You realize like, oh, I'm not going to never use a plastic bottle again, but maybe I should be really conscious. Maybe I should bring in my, you know, it's the reason we, we have these glasses here, right? We, we're using these glasses as opposed to like, well, just bring a plastic bottle in. Red it's not solo a cups. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a place for those where they can actually be more useful than, than not having them. I'm sure there's an argument mm-hmm. to say we shouldn't have any of those ever. Uh, I saw a little New Yorker cartoon. It was the devil who said, uh, and the little caption underneath was like, this is how we'll get them. We'll bottle water. <laughs> like, like, here's how I'm going to ruin the earth, basically. Yeah. I'm just going to bottle water. Yeah. Our next question is from Candace Foster. Candace says, what was the true joke behind the pull-up loop on your home tour behind the scenes clip? Oh, here's the thing. <laughs> Can you explain your joke to me? Is No, I won't explain the joke. It's, the, it, it, it's, a, it's a joke. There, it's not, there's nothing deeper to it. We're just goofy guys and any joke that you see us do it's really funny to us and we hope it's funny to you guys too well, it, and it was because so many people you know thought it was hilarious yeah. I, mean, I got so many co- uh, comments about about the uh, the pull up and, and just for the record no it wasn't me doing 239 pull ups <laughs> um, I, could, I love that someone stopped was it you that stopped and counted them no someone, so, else? someone else that he oh you yeah, Jordan uh, counted, counted them okay yeah and so um, I I no, I the the best way to to ruin a joke is to try to explain it. So right. so just 
just enjoy the joke, Candace. You, you'll 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 feel a whole yeah. lot better behind if you, it. If you laughed, awesome. If you didn't laugh, well, hopefully our next joke is funny. Sarah says, "My family of five started our minimalism journey." I think Sarah's from Dayton too. Cool. She uh, she, well, she lives in Cincinnati now. I remember responding to one of her community tab comments. Mm. My family of five started our minimalism journey to take back control of our time, space, and money. With that achieved, how can you decide how best to spend this new freedom? How do we find our, quote, purpose or, quote, passion, both uh, both as a family and as individuals? Ooh, so so there's a bit of a twist. There's a surprise ending in this question, right? Mm. Which said, both as a family and individuals. Mm. Well, think about a family real quick, Ryan. A family is a group of individuals with the same blood no <laughs> no but uh, that is often what we think of when we think of family unfortunately right but but i mean hopefully your spouse doesn't have the same blood right <laughs> unless you're like monarchs or something <laughs> right uh, so so think about this though so a, a family is a collective of individuals which then by itself becomes an individual meaning we, in fact, we, we use the term family unit. Yeah. Unit meaning one, a, a family of, of one. We're all together. So you, you have this dichotomy. It's a double bind in a way. Now, here's the good news. You, you said you've used minimalism to create the sort of space you need to identify what is uh, purpose and passion. Let's start with the word purpose, Ryan. Uh I think if there is a purpose, it has to do with what you and I would call living a meaningful life, what Sam Harris would call um, well-being, overall human well-being, starting with your own well-being, but the greater well-being of the world as well, right? And in and, and his book, uh, he wrote the book, uh, The Moral Landscape. He talks about the peaks and the, the valleys of, of uh, th- there's a worse possible well-being where everyone is suffering in, in eternity mm-hmm. you know and and the judeo-christian um tradition they call that hell right and it's mm-hmm. whether you believe that literally or figuratively there's like a figurative hell and in fact we say it all the time like yeah. oh the experience of i was really going through hell back then yeah. right and, and you've made it out of that experience yeah. and so what you're trying to what she's actually asking here when she's asking about purpose i think she's asking how do i optimize my well-being yeah and how do i optimize but, my family's like, well-being we've taken con- back control of our time we've taken back control of our space we've taken back control of our money now how do i what how do, the hell I, do i do how it? do i optimize this i mean well i think it's really important for sarah to to realize here that there are peaks plural mm. There isn't just one peak. There are many peaks. Same thing with your purpose. How do we find our purpose? That's the wrong question. How do we find our purposes? And which ones are you going to focus on? That's the question. Because Sarah, there's nothing that Josh and I can tell you that's going to help you find your one purpose. I don't even know what my one purpose is. Uh, If we ever have that formula, we'll let you know. But but, uh, I do know what my purposes are. And I know what I... Uh, have on my radar, what I want to focus on, what I have time to focus on, what I don't have time to focus on. So I would say, Sarah, write down what you think your purposes might be, and then ask yourself with the time and space and money that you've taken back, how can you invest those resources to uh, serve the, the the purpose that aligns most with your values? Yeah. Yeah. And so how do you do that? You have to get really clear on what your values are. Uh, 
Bex, my wife, has a um, uh, like a little worksheet, if, if you're not familiar with it. Just go to minimalwellness.com slash values, and you can identify what your values are. And then collectively, what are your family's values? And then I think if you want to optimize your, your well-being, it has to do with those values. And then you're going to find you and your husband and your kids have different values, but the majority of them are going to overlap. And focus on those first, because if you if you focus on what you're overlapping, like Ryan and I have the same five values. We wrote about it in uh, minimalism, the, the the same fundamental values, right? The the foundational values, uh, health, relationships, creativity, growth, and contribution. And those are our we have, those are the values we have. But then when you go layers above that. Like, what are our core values? What are our minor values? What are our imaginary values? Those differ greatly. Mm. And that's what adds variety to our relationship. And that's what will add value, variety to your family. So it's it's focusing on your shared values and then carving out the time so that individually you can each focus on the the individual values, the things that you value on your own. I just realized like Sarah and her family, they can go through what they value the most or maybe a list of purposes and see if something if they can find a common purpose that everyone feels drawn towards mm-hmm. uh, because she asks you know as a family and as an individual as an individual yes you write down your purposes and figure out what you can do with your time and energy but uh, when it comes to the family unit uh, you know, number five purpose on her list might be number one for her husband but if you can find those common purposes to f- uh, work on together then that is uh, that's I think how you can apply that to your whole family yeah, I, I agree, and I think in doing that, uh, doing the, the, the lists or the conversations, the sit downs, it's probably gonna be the first time you've actually ever done this. Yeah, right. It feels weird at first too. It does because it yeah. almost feels like this formal meeting. Right. But then what happens now when Bex and I sit down and talk about our values? Like we make these little tweaks. Like oh, I love the thing you added to your values. I realized since we've been spending time together, that's also a value of mine that I, I didn't put up front or you know what I say this is a value but I haven't really spent any time doing it I need to either decide yeah this is something I want to do or you know what maybe it's just a minor value or at this point it's an imaginary value you need to be able to delineate those for sure now she talked about passions Ryan mm. and no, uh, she talks about passion oh yeah passion yeah um <laughs> Well, and I think that's actually good to find a passion sure. first as opposed to the shotgun approach yeah. and to what are my 12 passions and put them in But you can be passionate about so many things. Right. Yeah. And, and so the question is, how do I cultivate that passion? And I'm glad that you're not waiting around uh, for the passion to show up. Seth Godin wrote something about this recently about um, if, you, uh, uh, if you're just sitting around waiting to do the work and, and waiting until you get passionate to do the work, you're not going to do the work because that's not how it works. Now, you might get the blip of excitement and your whole family might get excited about a project or you individually might, I've decided I finally want to write a cookbook or a children's book or whatever it is. You get excited, but you don't develop that into a passion till you actually run into some major drudgery and you realize there are going to be some obstacles on the way and, oh, this writing's bad and I hate the editing process and whatever it is, the real passion's on the other side of the drudgery. Yeah. I think you got to find that, Sarah. All right, let's see. We've got some other questions here. Jessica says, you two do an amazing job of delivering the message of minimalism to the masses. Of course we do, Jessica. <laughs> does it even need to be said? No, thanks so much. We appreciate that. <laughs> That's awesome. It does need to be said twice. Read it again, <laughs> Ryan. 
<laughs> no, um, how do you handle face-to-face conversations with yes butters, which I love that term, mm. who ask for your help? So someone asks for your help and you're like, well, here's what I recommend. And they're like, yeah, but yeah, yeah. yes butters is a yeah. really good term I like it. for that. Um, man, uh, so, so how do you deal with people who are like, yes, but, mm. yes, but ah, that's not realistic. I'll tell you, I, I have one story for me. Uh, when I was leaving the corporate world, so 2010 mm-hmm. uh, was when I was starting to work my way out. I didn't leave until 2011, but I, at the very end of 2010, when I when I uh, when I tried to quit, my boss wouldn't let me quit, which was weird. I then real, realized I was an indentured servant <laughs> <laughs> for a telecommunications yeah. company. I remember the day you told him we had that uh, like the corporate event where we all went bowling. And like he was just walking around looking like yeah we did all confused <laughs> like he didn't know what was up what was down it was crazy anyway well, well because um, we had started the minimalist we were already doing the minimalist I mean we weren't making any money from it or yeah. even trying to we were just sharing a, a story and ha- trying to solve our own problems and realize that might help some other people with some of their problems yeah. and and you know what is it eight plus years later at this point. And we've helped a lot of people solve some problems. We've helped an- answer some questions. But in doing that, they, people asked me, when I said I was leaving the corporate world. They were like, um, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm just going to be a, a writer. I'm going to try this writing thing out for a while. I wanted to write fiction. And they didn't believe me at first. People would say like, oh, are you going to go work for AT&T? And it's like, well, no. And like, can you take me with you? Come on, where are you really going? Like, you <laughs> can't can be really just be me. a writer, right? And that—that that was the thing. I, I'm like, no, I'm going to be a writer. And I got so many yes butters, mm. where it was like, yeah, but but if anyone could become a writer, then uh, then everyone would just become a writer. That's what they, they would do. And my first response was like, you realize that there are there are people who make a living from writing. Like, I'm not going to be the first guy to embark on this journey and become the first full-time writer. Yeah. Uh, have you heard of John Grisham? <laughs> <laughs> and, and countless others. Right. However, I, also, I had to let people know that, oh, no, money isn't my primary objective anymore. Mm. And that's what they were saying. You're making really good money in the corporate world. Josh, how could you leave this when you're not going to make nearly as much money. Yeah, you must be going to do something that you're going to make as much money. And when you say you're going to be a writer, they're like, how are you going to go just be a writer and make as much money? Because they assumed right. my priorities were the same, right? Yeah. And so I think with these yes butters, they're assuming your priorities are the same as theirs. Yeah. I think when it comes uh, to my life and the yes butters, I just let them be yes butters. You know, it's like my uh, siblings will come to me and ask me for advice. I give them my advice. Yeah, but and I'll be like, well, I guess if that's the attitude you continue to carry, then that's how it's going to be. I've I've given you a recipe. I've I've given you my two cents. Mm-hmm. Take it for what it's worth. Like I don't I don't. I guess it's my way of saying like, uh, what do I do with them? I don't do anything with yes butters. I don't lose sleep over the yes butters in my life. Because you're also not trying to be an idol to these people, no. or, or you you are an authority on certain subjects. And you and I have become authorities on minimalism. That doesn't make us infallible. It doesn't make us gurus. It doesn't make us perfect. No. It, in fact, it, we share our imperfections. And Patreon has been a great way for us to do that. And, and really like shining a light on some of the scars. Mm. Because in doing so, we're working our own problems and our own solutions. And that can help some people. And some people are going to be, yes, but. 
And that's fine. You might have different priorities from me. And if you have different priorities from me, then my solution might not work for you at all. And that's totally okay. So Jessica, guess what? Your solution might not work for those yes butters, but if it's working for you, then you can feel really good about that solution because their solutions aren't going to work for you either. That's good, man. So like the best way to handle a yes butter is to be a real life example of, of, you know, practicing what you preach essentially, because those yes butters, uh, they might start to look in the mirror and realize that, oh man, I've just been a yes butter my whole life. Hmm. And yeah, yeah. There's yeah. some kind of like aren't we all life yes being butters, full of asses though? joke there. I, I just <laughs> nothing's coming to me. <laughs> uh, Jacob says, "Have you heard of co-living? And what are your thoughts on it?" I'm intentionally not posting a link. Do your own research. What a terrible question, Jacob. I know. I don't even <laughs> know. Uh, I, I want to. I'm tempted to say no. I don't know what co-living is and just move on. Right. Because your question was, "Have you heard of co-living?" Nope. nope. <laughs> <laughs> not, and, I don't have time to research it right now. Thanks for the question. Uh, but I actually have because Sean, oh. podcast Sean's been in a co-living situation before when he first moved to Missoula before his family came out. Oh. Co-living is is basically... Sharing a bathroom. Like we're in a co-working space right now, right? So, okay. So although this studio is not... This studio is ours. It's our studio within a broader co-working space that we work. Right. And, and so WeWork has all the shared space. We have all the amenities. We have printers that we don't have to own, but we have access to. We have conference rooms we don't own but we have access to when we were in montana we were part of a a pseudo co-working space yeah. there as well at the university of montana where we had our own little space this little 160 square foot studio space that we have but then in addition to this we have shared spaces now sean had the shared space where it was basically he had his own bedroom it was like a dorm for adults <laughs> that's what co-living is it's it was dorms the, for adults it was one of the coolest apartments i've ever seen you know they're, they're talking about turning that uh ken who's both of our old landlords back in missoula they're talking yeah. they're talking about turning that into a food hall downstairs oh. and then upscale airbnb upstairs oh, so short-term genius. co-living yeah. spaces airbnb is often a co-living space a type of co-living um I'm all for the shared economy as long as it's not forced sharing. Right. And, and I, that's what I really like. You and I have been on tour, Ryan. We've stayed in over 100 Airbnbs over the last eight years. Uh, yeah. we, we've shared co-working spaces. I like the sharing economy. People share their cars through Airbnb or I'm sorry, sorry, through Uber or through Lyft. They share their homes through Airbnb. Mm-hmm. And I think there's going to be more and more of that now. We see it with Craigslist or these mm-hmm. different apps, uh, Joy Mode, where you can rent items, um, Omni where you can share your stuff with other people. There are just in a few cities. We had Ryan from Omni on the podcast, remember? Yeah. And, and that sharing of things, sharing of space, I'm all for sharing. And I think it's going to make our world a whole lot better for the things we're not using frequently. It makes me think that we're kind of already into these co-living situations. I mean, if you think about the roads and national parks and local parks, like there are all these co-living spaces we already have. Uh, so in answer to your question, no, I've never heard of it, but I think I know what you're talking about and I'm all for it. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right, what do we have here? We have Brandy. Brandy says, can you do a tour of Ella's room and how you manage toys and organize them? It's more of a crate, isn't it? Like a pet crate that you have for yeah, her? Yeah, it's that? actually, it's, it's a crate, really. <laughs> it's, it's in I'm the video. Kidding. Jordan did, the, it's in the, it's, go to our home tour. And just hit pause when I'm in her room. I mean, that's her thing of toys. She has two of those. And she wouldn't have a better life if she had 10 of them. Yeah. Um, so but she has a decent-sized room. She's got everything she needs for a room, her lamp, her 
her uh you know her sheets and linen everything that she needs it's it's uh it's it's not it's not just a crate that she lives in i guess is what i'm trying no, to no, say no i'm saying her toys are in a crate right, right, yeah but uh her toys specifically yeah, yeah they're in like this little and it's in it's in the home tour so check that out but it's weird i i, I um I, I always need to make sure that I have her permission to do things with stuff like that, right? Like she had to be a willing participant in our home tour. Otherwise, I don't want her in that right. because I don't want to normalize like a man just constantly telling her, uh, you need to do this right now. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's a delicate balance because I also need to be a father. Mm-hmm. And there are times where I have to tell her, you have to do this. But there are some things where her participation is totally optional. It's not optional that you have to put your damn shoes on and we need to leave right now. Mm-hmm. That's not optional. I'm going to tell you to do that. But participating in the home tour, thankfully, she, you know, we had her consent. And because also I wanted her to not begrudgingly be part of it. And Jordan got some magical shots of her throughout that whole home tour and especially the Patreon behind the scenes stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was a day that she... Um, she was feeling really good and, and, and we had a whole lot of fun together, but I also walked the line. Like I, I want, I wanted to welcome people into our home without showing you our sex toy drawer or, you know, Ella's underwear drawer or something like that would be, that to me is just, it's going too far for me. It's, it's the line I draw. Other Mm -hmm. people might draw a line of. I'm never going to share a photo of my significant other ever. And that's fine. That's your line that you're going to draw. So figuring out what lines are important. So I think you can mm-hmm. you can actually see it there. Uh, the way that we manage and organize her toys is by having far fewer of them. It's the easiest way to, to manage toys, man. The less you have, the less you have to manage. Right. And, <laughs> and then help her understand that she if she's not playing with something anymore. She needs to make room for new toys and understand where those toys are going to go help her let go of them. It's not just me taking them to the goodwill, but having her donate them to either friends or to the goodwill so that she can make room for the new toys, understanding what's happening with them as opposed to like, well, we just got rid of your toys. Now here are some new toys. Enjoy. Yeah. All right. We got uh, one more question. Do we have time for it? Yeah, we got time. Uh, this is a longer one here. Mary Acosta said, I'm sorry for the rambling. I thought my question needed the background to get the right feedback. I actually don't think it does, but I'll read it anyway because the last sentence is really the question. My mother died recently. Uh, my mother, oh, crap. My mother has recently been diagnosed with motor neuron disease and is declining rapidly. I had chosen not to have a relationship with her about six months ago as the relationship is toxic. I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah. My father committed suicide when I was 17. I'm now 37, our age. And I missed out on having a lot of meaningful conversations with him before he died. I wanted the opportunity to have meaningful conversations with my mom and try to repair the broken relationship before she died. I have made the best effort I can. That's an important line. Let's come back to that one in a moment, Ryan. Let's see if it's true also. Mm. But she wants me to pretend everything is okay. And talk about meaningless things like the weather with me rather than having the hard conversations to resolve our issues before she dies. Okay, so let's talk about this. I'm not even going to keep going here, Ryan. Resolve our issues. Who told you you need to resolve your issues? Mm -hmm. This is the common theme of this whole episode. Who told you that you have to resolve every issue? I think like as human beings, man, we just have to have closure. We have to have a beginning 
and we have to have an end. It's why songs get stuck in our head. It's because we just get the chorus on loop and we never get to the end. Uh, here's the, here's here's the, what I'm going to say about that. I agree with you. We have to have a beginning and end, and we confuse having an end with having a resolution. Yeah. There will be an end. There always will be an end, but it doesn't always resolve the way you want it to be. The reason David Foster Wallace is my favorite author, Ryan, mm-hmm. is he was obsessed with irresolvability. Mm. Not just the unsolved, but like these double binds. Because if something is truly unsolvable, well, then you have your resolution right there, right? It's like yeah. you, you have a some sort of puzzle that you can't solve. Like literally it can't be solved. Yeah. Then it's solved by the fact that it can't be solved. Yeah. But sometimes... Uh, so I, let's talk. Let's continue to talk about David Foster Wallace for a moment. His first novel, which came, which was his grad student thesis, or may have been his regular college thesis, um, is called *The Broom of the System*. And spoiler alert: fast forward for thirty seconds if you don't want to hear this. But uh, the end of that novel, the very last page. Have you fast forward yet? Keep fast forwarding. Um, the very last page ends mid sentence. Oh, mid character sentence he's mm. having it's a line of dialogue even there's not even a period, period. there's no there's not a period it ends mid-sentence and oh. you're like <gasps> why and then there's his, gonna be part two coming out and of course there never was right? right uh no that's the thing sometimes things just end mm. and they don't resolve the way you wanted them to resolve now it doesn't mean you can't put your best foot forward right now and try to well, the thing she said is, my mom wants to pretend everything is okay. Mm. Maybe everything is okay to her. And it's not okay to you. Mm-hmm. But maybe for her, everything is okay. She gets to decide what's okay for her. Yeah, You get to decide what's okay with you. Mm-hmm. And those two things may not reconcile. And there, that in and of itself is irresolvability. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think about relationship with my dad. And, you know, if he got sick right now, and uh, I had only like I, there were there were, his days were numbered, and I knew that it was just a short amount of time. And of course, this is like a thought experiment, so I can't really say how I would act if it happened. But I mean, I have enough closure on that relationship to where I don't feel like I'd have to squeeze in this trying to repair a relationship with the last of his days. I mean, I would certainly support him as much as I can, but. Yeah, like I've already let go of, hey, like I live, uh, I live a different life than he's willing to accept, and I'm not willing to, uh, you know, live the life that he says I need to live in order for us to have a good relationship. It's like when, and that goes with anyone in life, man. When anyone starts to put rules on relationships, I mean, it's. Did you see that thing that's been the 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 viral thing that's going around, Jordan? You see it? Uh, I don't know, Sean, if you saw it. The, so someone bought a car from, mm-hmm. from someone, you know, bought a used car. I like say I bought your 2004 Toyota Corolla. I never knew you. Um, and I bought your, toy, your Toyota Corolla. And then like I found like stuck, the, stuck you know, between the seats or underneath the seat. Um, there was a note the previ- from the previous owner's girlfriend. Mm. And it was the 22 ro- rules for our relationship. Yeah. yeah and... Like I could tell that clearly they they weren't dating anymore. Just based on she had these rules. Like one of them was like you're n- you're not allowed to have the phone number of any single woman in your phone. You, you you're not allowed to um, uh, talk to single woman women unless I'm there. Yeah. You you're not allowed to get mad at me for anything 
uh, ever. I mean, it was these absurd rules. Yeah. Any rules. You're right. Any rules on a relationship. Well, well, where I was actually going with that is that when someone lays out the rules, when this girl lays out the 22 rules, you know what? Good for her. She knows exactly what she wants. Mm. But that person gets to decide if they want to follow those rules. Ah. Uh, I mean, Mariah and I have plenty of rules. We have uh, the rule of honesty. We have the rule of uh, don't ask. We have a lot of rules in place that we both agree upon. And that's honestly why we have such a great relationship is because we're on the same page with so many things. Now, if she started to lie and and started to cheat and steal and, and live a lifestyle that I couldn't support... Well, then, yeah, there are certain rules that I would look at and say, no, I'm not willing to follow those rules. Well, what you're saying, you, you said something very revealing there, Ryan. You said, we have rules, mm. not she has rules yeah, or yeah. I have rules. Right. It's like we've we've created this life together. And as a result, like these rules are helped their boundaries that we've set up for our own life. Continuing the question here, she said, I've pulled back and I'm no longer, I no longer wish to participate in the relationship unless she wants to have meaningful conversations or interactions with me. Pulling back has been hard for me as I feel guilty. And I also get a lot of judgment from my family because what kind of person doesn't talk to their dying mother? I have always been the one turning the other cheek and forgiving her. And I've given her, given her more chances than I can count over the years. It upsets me to go and see her. And I'm upset when I don't go and see her because I feel like I'm being a bad daughter. No, she. it's, man, it, it is so unfortunate that, we allow other people's uh, judgments to shape the our perception of ourselves. And here's the thing: is are you being a bad daughter in your in your mom's eyes, Mary? Yeah, you are. And is she being a bad mother in your eyes? Yeah, she is. Mm. And there is no resolution. There might not be a resolution there. Uh, it doesn't sound like there is going to be much resolution here. Because you've tried. This isn't the first go around at, at the, right. the rodeo here. You've you've tried to reconcile. It's not like, yes. like you're like, oh, I'm fed up. I'm not even going to try to fix this. You've tried to fix it. Yeah. So let's say like, let, let's let's go to a terminus of this. Uh-huh. My rule is, is I don't hang out with heroin addicts. I don't. I don't care if they're related to me. I don't care if they're a friend. If you start to do heroin, uh-huh. you and I cannot be friends. Now, on, on looking at the other side of that relationship, they might say, well, heroin's a part of my life, and heroin is what I do, mm-hmm. and it's something that I really like to do, and I'm not giving it up for you. Mm-hmm. It, there's nowhere to go from there. Right. I mean, that is where uh, someone has to be the adult and say, oh, this relationship isn't going to work. I mean, it, it, there's a, we could take it to the terminus in a lot of ways, but with Mary, I mean, I guess it's a little bit more difficult because it isn't such a... A stark, drastic situation, but but it still is a situation where, yeah, Mary, your mom has this rule that you need to pretend that everything is okay, and you have a rule that says no, we need to have hard convert these hard conversations before I can feel like everything is okay. Last, she wants to know if we have any coping strategies. Could you recommend any coping strategies you have used when cutting off toxic relationships with Mm -hmm. people? Yeah, one big one for me. Big one. I was talking to Jamie Kilstein about this this past week. Um, we had lunch together um, over at Tiago, and which is like a little coffee shop. Um, and he he had a lot of these. So I'll, I'll give you a brief overview of, of his story, Ryan. He um, he was like extreme left liberal. Um, social justice warrior, like snowflakes. He's one of them snowflakes. I gotcha. <laughs> no, but like he and and he got the 
he got his sort of sense of satisfaction by tearing other people down for not being liberal enough. Mm. So he is like what you would call like, like when you see like it's almost like outrage porn in a way, right? Yeah. Not like not porn porn, but like like yeah, people just getting outraged it's, and it's, triggered it's, and it's finding things to nitpick yeah and 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 virtue signaling in a way that is toxic toxic virtue signaling we all virtue signal and by the way it's it's usually helpful in most of the things that we do sure um and and that's why i think virtue signaling in of itself gets a bad rap yeah but but there's toxic virtue signaling where it's like instead of here's how what i really feel i want to show the world that you and i we value signal right we tell people what our values are we write about our values yeah that's a type of virtue signaling but when it's like we're pretending we have these values because it looks good on Twitter. That is toxic virtue signaling. Mm -hmm. And it got to a point where I think both fringes, the left and the right, they both start eating their own. You're not extreme enough for me. And finally there was some road he wasn't willing to cross or whatever. And all of a sudden he was getting excoriated by his own tribe, Mm. the far, far, far left. And he realized like, Oh no, like, my real values is I'm an extreme moderate, but I've just been dragged in this this direction because I get these sort of brownie points. Mm. Uh, it's what David Foster Wallace called um, food pellets from the universe. Mm. Like you do something, you you do, you create this sort of outrage, and people like award you for it momentarily. It, it's like a car car crash. People don't stick around for very long, but you yeah. get a little bit of both bur- uh, of clout, momentary clout for it. And what he realized, here's the answer to the question, how, how did he cope with walking away from those people? Is he had to f- start finding people with similar values. Yeah. And that was a coping mechanism in and of itself. Community is so important, man. And, and going back to what you were saying about family, is family, it doesn't mean the same, uh, it's the same blood in running through our veins. Mm-hmm. Family is, is, it's what you make of it. And yes, I, I, I totally agree with you, man. Like finding people out there with the same values, with the same beliefs, finding a community to support you, Mary, that's going to be huge for you. Find people who look at you and they, they do that. It is rules that you guys agree on, that you are on the same page with, with things. Uh, it's so hard when, because, you know, with the relationship with her mom, I mean, that's her long, probably one of her longest relationships she has. Mm-hmm. So the when, longest, right? You came out of that person. Yeah. So when we look at these these relationships that we've had the longest and they've been so toxic, it kind of makes it daunting to think about starting new relationships because we don't want to go through all that again. But the, the fact is, is that, you know, there are 7 billion people in the world. Uh, you, you're going to find people out there who are going to support you, who are going to respect you and and they're going to build you up instead of tearing you down. And some of those people might be surrogate mothers in the future. I know for me, like I never really knew m- my father, so I don't have many thoughts about him. Like he, I lived with him the first three to four years of of my childhood. So I have a few memories, and I saw him once after that. I was seven. Mm. Um, talked to him on the phone uh, maybe once a month when I was growing up, but he continued to get more ill. In time, but I've had surrogate fathers. And it would have been great to have a idyllic childhood with a with a father who you know cared and 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 was not ill. Sure, but knowing I couldn't have that, the other option was to have surrogate fathers. So like our mentor uh, Carl, who who has been really helpful with uh, with a lot of things, especially when I was back in the business world. I've had bosses. Uh, I think of my favorite boss of all time was a guy named Jim Har 
who was very much a surrogate father when I was in my early 20s. And I learned so much about questioning. What's mm -hmm. the why behind the what? Right. And learning from him and becoming a better man, a better person mm. because of him. So it doesn't mean just because your mother, your relationship with your mother has soured, doesn't mean you can't have similar relationships. And by the way, there will be a time, Mary, you're 37 years old, you very well might be a surrogate mother for someone else at this point. Yeah. And that's that's beautiful too. You be a mentor for them and and you know, pass on what you wish you would have had from your own mother. Yeah, you know, that example you give with Jim, you've kind of got a, a couple choices there when one of those relationships starts to blossom. Like you could look at it and, and kind of play a victim almost and be like, oh, woe is me. I wish I would have had a father like this growing up. Or you could look at that situation and think how lucky you are mm. to have an opportunity to, to have a mentor, to have a father figure that you can really uh, devote time to. It, yeah, you're. I totally agree with you, man. Like you don't have to... <sighs> you don't have to have a real father to have a father figure. <laughs> yeah, and the yeah. cool news about that is you can you can pick your surrogate parents. Yeah. You can't pick your real parents. Amen. All right, Patreon supporters, true fans. Thank you for being a true fan. This has been Ask the Minimalists number 19. Yes. We will see you next month. Thank you so much for your support. Thanks for everything. Bye. The Minimalists. <laughs>